Well, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Fritz, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Murray is off this week, uh, but I would love to meet you uh, before you leave today. Uh, I'd also, before we get going this morning, I'd like to call attention to a couple uh, special guests this morning. Um, and Larry, is it Meg? Deb. Deb. I knew it was three letters, and it had an E in it. Deb and Larry Hook are here this morning. Uh, Larry has served the church for years and years. He's going to lead us in communion. Uh, Deb has served the church as well. Just thank you for being here. And then Mike and Janice Sherritt. Um, didn't know they were going to be here. I missed that memo. And they're two beautiful grandchildren, um, Truman and Calvin. Um, Mike and Janice are going to be serving you this summer while your pastor <clears throat> is, your senior pastor is on a way for sabbatical. So don't tell them any of the bad stuff. Say only great things to them, and uh, they will be a delight, I promise you. So with that said, uh, look at John chapter 11, if you have a Bible or some sort of electronic device uh, that doesn't have your Twitter no notifications coming in left and right. Um, if you've been around long enough, uh, especially in the 80s or 90s, I know I'm dating myself, but you have heard of the top 10. I researched where the top 10 came from. I, I've got to be wrong on this, but everything I found said it came from David Letterman. And I'm like, seriously? Like there wasn't a top 10 before that? You can correct me later on that, but if you grew up at all watching David Letterman and his top 10 and all those funny things... What we're looking at this morning in the past few weeks and the next couple weeks is what I would consider not just one of the top ten teachings in the Bible, but I'd put it up there in the top three, maybe the top. And that is the subject of eternity, glory, glorification, last things, the end, what's coming, resurrection in the words of John 11. And what we've said over and over, that one thing that John is doing by inviting us to see who Jesus is as the Son of God and as the Chosen One, as the Messiah, as the it that you are searching for, is that he's saying if you believe into Him, you will have life both eternally and life now in the present. Jesus is indeed, John is indeed, putting eternity back into our vocabulary, where it should be. So read with me, join with me as I read John chapter 11, verse 28, and we look at the story of Jesus and Mary. When she had said this, that is Martha from the previous text, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, that is Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
in the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's again go to the Lord. God, we do come before you this morning giving you thanks again for your living word. Just the beauty and the benefit of hearing it read, how honest it is, how real it is, how truthful, how it, how it is filled with grace and truth. Lord, as was prayed earlier, would you renew our minds and renew our hearts that we might believe and continue to believe and by believing have life in your name. And God, for those who have not yet believed, may they see the sign that we are marinating in, pointing to the greater sign that they would marinate in Jesus' death and resurrection and that they too would come out of the tomb and have their grave clothes taken off and be free, free to serve Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So, a couple years ago now, um, I don't bring this up, I'm not going to overqualify this, but I don't bring this up for political reasons or make some statement, but if you're from Louisville and the surrounding area, if you just watch the national news, you know about Breonna Taylor and all that happened a couple years ago. And when that happened, you know, all sorts of things start, you know, this person says this and this group says that and we should do this and don't do that and you can disagree with all those things all day, that's not what I'm why I'm bringing this up. My first response to that was just like, wow, come Lord Jesus. Like, just broken hearted. And, and my intuition told me, especially because um, I did have, I would say, deferring opinions living in my house, not my married person. But I had other people living in my house at that time that certainly saw things very differently and do see things. And you free to wrestle with those things. But our neighbor at the time was a lady named Eja. And my intuition told me, you need to have Eja over and ask her about this. Because Eja is a woman. Eja is African-American. And Eja was a retired policeman. And we were sitting there, and I was really looking, you know, probably for her to say something to my kids that would just help them and help us. And I asked her about it. I said, Egypt, how are we supposed to just even begin to understand this? And before she said a word, she just began to weep. Almost uncontrollably. And she, through her tears, looked at us and said, it is so complicated at so many levels. This is a complex problem. I couldn't have asked her to say anything better. As we look at this text today, you will see Jesus weeping. You'll see Jesus 
moving toward you with your tears. You will see him weeping with you and for you. But you will also see that he came to do far more than that. Because the problems of the world are much more complicated. And sentimentality and compassion and pity are one thing. And quick fixes are one thing. That is not why Jesus is here. He has come to undo the problem and make everything sad and bad untrue. And through you, the church, He is untruing things right now. Do you believe that? The first thing that we see this morning is that Jesus moves toward us in our overwhelming grief. Verses 28 through 30. Like a good parent with their grieving, crying child, Jesus moves toward us in our overwhelming grief. Last week we saw Jesus is met by Mary's sister Martha, who is full, if you remember, of resentment and faith. She comes to Jesus. She wants to do something. She's more of an activist, so to speak. She comes to Jesus and says, if you would have just been here, but even now, you can do something. Jesus declared not just a promise to her of what He would do, but He declared who He was, His personhood, who, that He is divine, He is God, He is the resurrection. He has better news than just a temporary resurrection from death. And He asked her to believe into Him. Martha professes that He is the Son of God, He is the Messiah. Everything John says that He wants us to believe about Jesus and now, Martha becomes a bearer of good news to her grieving sister, Mary. Look at verse 28. What is the good news that Martha, the evangelist, is sharing with her believing, but struggling to believe, grieving sister? When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. And He's calling for you. Do you see that good news? We're going to look at that good news in a second. But I want to revisit something I brought up next week. Not because I have an agenda. But because the Bible has little sub-points. That aren't the main point. All sorts of things. But one of the sub-points that you clearly see here is how Jesus treated women. Again, it's not the point of the text, but it is a point in the text. And we don't need to overlook it and ignore it. And we don't need to say it's the central thing in the Bible. Because he treated all his children and disciples like this. But just notice again that he is friends with Martha and Mary. He loved them as friends. And as we saw in Luke 10 a year ago, they were discipled by Jesus. Rabbis wouldn't do that. Jesus would. And on that note, if you've not signed up for the women's retreat, you can be discipled by Jesus there too. But back to the point. Because that's not the main point of this text, but it is a point. Notice also in Mary the juxtaposition, like we saw last week, of faith. And in Mary's case, despair. Frustration and supplication. 
grief, and hope. We saw in Martha resentment and faith. Why, if you'd have just been here, even accusation and anger at Jesus. But we also see it in Mary. What was Mary doing before the before Martha runs in? Well, we know what she was doing. Look over at verse 20. She was sitting in her grief. Any Marys in here? Some of you are Marthas. When you have pain or grief, you want to do something to fix it. You want to run and get help. Mary just wants to sit in it. And we all handle our grief differently. And we have freedom to do that in Christ. Mary wants to sit in it. She's crushed. She's sad. You might even say depressed. I don't know if she is clinically. It just may be her personality. But she is overwhelmed with grief. She would be akin with Isaiah 40 when Israel cries out, Is my way disregarded by the Lord? Do you see me in my pain? And the answer is yes. And your way is not disregarded by God. What does Jesus do? He calls to her. Just listen. This is overwhelming. You can't. The teacher is here and calling for you. Do you know how personal that is? Jesus is seeking you personally in your pain. Then notice what depressed, despondent, grief-stricken Mary does. Verse 29, she springs up. Do you see it? It's as if she were just waiting on Jesus to call. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Do you see it again, this juxtaposition that John gives us? She's sitting, brooding. She jumps up, runs, and falls at his feet. And notice she says the same thing as her sister. If you would have just been here, my brother would not have died. In her case, the Greek for my brother is actually more emphatic. In other words... My brother, this hurts me. It's as if she is saying, Jesus, why did you not come? But I'm really glad you came. I'm glad you're here, but why didn't you come? She's brooding yet believing. And notice that Jesus lets her talk. He receives all of this. Whether it's a complaint, it's weeping... It's grieving, it's, it's whatever it is. He receives it. And he moves toward the crushed in spirit. As C.S. Lewis said to future ministers in the church, Jesus was a lot like this quote, the proper study of shepherds is not other shepherds, it's sheep. And Jesus knows his sheep. He knows our frame. He is the second person of the Trinity. John 1 says that everything, including you and your particular frame, is made by Jesus. And just like you know a work of art or something you make out of wood or whatever craft you are into, you know it intimately well. Jesus moves toward you in your overwhelming grief. We have a cat that I've told you about before. Murray and I, the other pastor here, if you're new here, have competing cat stories. He has Hoagie. 
we have Artemis. And I've told you that Artemis is getting very old. She cannot see anymore. She cannot hear anymore. She struggles to get around, and her hair is now everywhere. And let me just note, I'm not a cat person. I'm a dog person. We could divide this church. I know that. Some of you are in the middle. I appreciate you. But I don't like cats. I kind of like this cat. She was beautiful. Just, you know, she was a good cat. But you know what God has been doing in my heart? The older she gets, the more broken she gets, the more I find myself moving toward her. It's strange. I would have never, it's a miracle. I see her running around in the circle. She can't find her food. I go talk kitty kitty stuff to her and I pick her up. She's, she gets scared and I just gently put her by her food. She doesn't go to the bathroom in her litter cage anymore and I, and I throw it in there. Do you see that Jesus moves toward you and calls for you in your very desperate, hard circumstances? Just put your name in Mary's place. The teacher is calling for you. Do you know that you have friends, Christian and non-Christian, who Jesus wants you to move toward in their grief? I'm tempted to go on a rabbit trail. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Some of your friends are paralyzed with depression, despair, darkness, or they just go through dark seasons. And they often do this when you reach out to them. And it feels weird to go, I want to come toward you. Jesus says you and I are the body of Christ. Jesus is not Gnostic. His spirit is not just hovering up there somewhere. It's hovering inside of you. And just like Jesus moves toward these, so do we. Secondly, Jesus moves toward us in our overwhelming grief, but he grieves with us and for us. As we will see in a minute, Jesus does far more than move toward us and grieve with us and for us, but he does not do less. Look at verses 33 through 35. When he saw, do you hear the humanity of Jesus there? God had eyes. God is Jesus. Jesus is God. The person you are reading about is the true God. There is no God in heaven that isn't like this Jesus. When God saw someone's grief, it caused him to well up with what? Grief. He grieves with us and he grieves for us. Jesus wept. Two things under this heading. Two difficult questions regarding these verses. Let me reread them again. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Two questions that come out of this verse specifically troubles him. 
First of all, how troubled is he? We have to look at the phrase in verse 33 and ask what it means. The ESV and even the NIV say something like, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled or greatly troubled. Another version says he was deeply moved and visibly distressed. Those actually, according to most uh, writers, th those are weak. Uh, the message says it like this, a deep anger welled up within Jesus. Another says that he was intensely troubled. The problem is here with the phrase that you use, the word here is more than sadness. It's more than and, and just sort of empathy. It's, it's the idea of being greatly agitated, expressing indignation, anger. It, it has to do with the snorting of horses when they're sort of aroused. It has this tone of outrage, almost like trauma is being provoked in Jesus. He's torn up about this. And notice where he's torn up inside, in his spirit, internally. And the word for troubled is the same word later used in John when he says, now is my soul troubled because he's going to the cross. He's not just weeping or sad or a little upset. His soul is torn up because he's about to die for our sin. It's also used when he is troubled in spirit about Judas. He's visibly upset. He's so troubled. He's so torn up on the inside. He weeps. It's what you might call an angry sadness or a sad anger. The best word we can come up with is an intense grief. Now, why is he so torn up? It shouldn't surprise you that commentators debate this. But we do. They do. But there's more of a debate than you might think. If I asked you, why is he so upset? Probably ten different opinions. And you might have good, a good idea. Here's a couple that, that were thrown out there. First of all, he simply grieves because of the death of a friend. He's sad. Probably some of that. Secondly, he is caught up in the emotions of it. When he sees them weeping, just like maybe when you walk into a funeral, you weren't that sad when you got there, and you see all the sadness, and it just it triggers sadness in you. Some people say he is upset. He is angry and indignant because they are grieving without hope. In those days, you would hire people to console you. If you were poor, you would hire one wailing woman. I don't know why guys got overlooked. We don't wail that well. But secondly, a fiddler. No, that's not right. Flute player. Had fiddles back then. Maybe they did. I don't know. You would hire a flute player and a wailing woman. Mike, do you see what you got to follow here? Sorry. But these were well-to-do folk. They were prosperous. This family was that Jesus loved and cared about. That's another note. Uh, Jesus loves people that do well, too. But here's the deal. He's also, 
there's another, there's another one to throw out. He's also thinking, possibly, about his upcoming death. If you remember in John 2, we said that when Jesus was at a wedding, it was almost like he was a little put off when Mary said something. It was like he was in another world thinking about something else. And some people say that maybe he was thinking about his own wedding one day and what it would take to get there called the cross. And, and they think that maybe he's doing the same thing. He's, just, he, he's thinking about his own tomb and his own death and resurrection that is coming. Here's what I think in a guy that I listened to in England. He said, you know, I think it's all of these and more. It's just the whole thing. It's the whole shebang. It's, it's, it's basically all the havoc that death brings with it. It is probably all of these things, and we, we understand that, don't we? When something hits you heavy, let's say not just a death, all deaths are tragic, but let's say a very tragic death, a young person or a baby or something, and what you do in your grief when you're, you're wailing and you're crying out and you're deeply sad is all sorts of things start going through your mind and you think back on that person's life and you, if you go back further and further, you just go, where did all this come from? Why is this happening? And can you imagine Jesus, as my wife reminded me this, this week, here's Jesus at a funeral, at a death. And Jesus was there at creation when everything was good. He goes all the way back. He goes before creation in the life of the Trinity that we're going to get to enjoy in John 14 through 17. And, and he's got this tremendous, beautiful picture of love and the fruit of the Spirit and the glory of God and the goodness of God. And then let's share that and create these people and let's, let's just do this beautiful thing and then sin. That'll get you upset, won't it? And death. Literally, when I was typing this point and I had another illustration, I get a text about my uncle who I've told many of you about who had ALS that he, at that moment, had just died. This, this man was like a father to me when there were times where my dad was not a great dad. And my Uncle Marty was like that good dad and I just stopped typing and what it, what do you do you just start grieving it all see Jesus is God but he is human and he knows what it was all like but he also knows what it's going to be like he looks back but he also looks forward because Jesus has come to do far more than just move toward us in our grief to grieve with us and grieve for us he has come to save us from sin and death. Look at verses 36 through 37. This isn't going to jump out to you. You're going to have to read between the lines a little bit. I did not understand this at first. But look at the two responses to Jesus. Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Right? Jesus just comes and he weeps with those who weep. He's weeping over Lazarus. They're misunderstanding his weeping, just like we would. He's so sympathetic. He's so kind. Uh, he, he came up with a campaign called He Gets Us. He's human. Pity. And we should rejoice in that. But He's come to do more. 
Look at the second response, verse 37. Here are the cynics. The first people see the cup half full. The second see it half empty. Could not he have opened the eyes of the blind and also kept this man from dying? Right? But where's his power? Why doesn't he fix things? If he came here, let just do, do something now. He could have prevented this. If he's God, right? We see these two sides all the time responding to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? I love it, verse 34. Where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? Yes, I've come here to do something. I've come here to grieve with you. I've come here to grieve for you. I have come to do more. I have come to raise this man from the dead, but I have come to do more than that because I know the problem at the root. I'm going to get to the bottom of things. I'm going to get to the whole reason that Lazarus has died in the first place. And I'm going to upend it. I'm going to turn it upside down and inside out. I'm going to the root of the problem. They had no idea, did they? See, Jesus was on his way to do something. Jesus is sympathetic, but he's far more than sympathetic. He's come to fix things, but far greater than we could ever imagine. He came to deal with not only death, but what brought death into the world. Let me give you a silly illustration for this, but we remodeled our house mostly. It was a wreck, all sorts of problems, not a wreck anymore. But the one thing we did not touch was the toilet in the basement bathroom. It's not dirty, we cleaned it. But it has this little problem that it'll just start making a noise, like shh, and I know how to fix it. I'm sympathetic to my wife, and I'm a quick fixer, and I go in there and I hit the handle and go shh, and it goes shh, and it stops for about a day. Somebody was over the other night and said, why don't you just fix that thing? And I just started like, you don't know, have trauma for me. i got to go talk to a counselor. They said, I can fix it. You just got to do this. That's the root of the problem. And I was like, okay, come over tomorrow. Jonathan Edwards says there are three reasons we can be filled with hope if we believe into Jesus in the face of grief. One, God will turn even the bad things around for our good in the end. Do you believe that? All the bad things you have gone through, or even the bad you have caused for others. Secondly, your good things can't ever be taken from you. Ever. And thirdly, the best things are yet to come. One day Jesus is going to return and say, show me the tombs. Where have they laid my people? Come out. The word in verse 28, for Jesus is here, has the same tie into the word. I'll mispronounce it, parousia. Ask Larry or Mike later. It has to do with his return, his coming back, his presence. What do we do 
in the meantime? What do we do as a result of that future? I think just like Martha, we share this good news. Even with people that you don't think are ready to receive it. You have no idea. For all you know, they might spring up and go to Jesus. They just might. And you think they're a hopeless case. What are these consolers consoling with? You ever thought about that? We're going to follow you to the tomb. We're going to sympathize with you. We're sentimental. We're going to cry with you. But what do they say? They have no hope. We have hope. We are those who are filled with consolation. Not quick fixes. Not sentimentality. But the good news of the gospel. The life. The death the resurrection, the ascension, the current reign and mediation of Jesus until He comes again as we are about to celebrate at this table. Let me pray. Lord, thank You for this great hope. Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant about these things like those who grieve with no hope. That Jesus, You will return in due time. And even though we may think it's late, it will be perfect timing. And all the sad things will be untrue. Lord, let us live in light of this truth, in light of your coming again. You are untruing us even now. Let us be messengers with great consolation to our believing friends who are down and discouraged and to our unbelieving friends who don't even know the half of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.